0: Well, whether you refer to them as wild dogs or dingoes, the bottom line is that they cause enormous damage to sheep flocks, let alone the stress on wool growers and communities around them. Well, today we bust some big myths about wild dogs and dingoes. Welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. So today we meet a new member of the Yarn podcast team. She's been working in Western Australia for AWI for much of the year. So those in the West will have probably already met or at least heard of Tori Kirk, but today we all get to meet her. G'day, Tori.
1: Hi, Marius.
0: So look, you've been with us for much of the year, as I said, but uh, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. I have to say it's been a great pleasure working with you so far.
1: Yes, well, I come from a farming family based out of Wagen, where I was lucky enough to grow up. And I think from that, I've always been passionate about working in ag and for rural communities. Uh, and I've had a fantastic start here in the role in WA with AWI. I've got around a lot of the state in the last few months, and I'm really looking forward to building on that relationship with WA wool producers.
0: So wild dogs have uh, been an issue for Australian wool innovation and and wool growers across the country for a long time. Um, They cost the WA sheep industry alone $25 million annually. It's a phenomenal figure. AWI invests about half a million dollars in this area nationally every year, but um, you've got a, a bit more information on this.
1: That's right. So, wild dogs are still an ongoing challenge for many regions in WA as well as Australia, and I recently spoke with Tracy Creplins from the WA Department of Primary Industries about what the current understandings and assumptions on wild dogs and their control method efficacies are, beginning with what is mesopredator theory?
2: Uh, so, it's the theory that the apex predator, when taken out of the ecosystem, Um, will cause an influx or increase in numbers or just more activity of the mesopredators. So essentially, if you took out wild dogs um, from the landscape, feral cats would explode in numbers. Um, So therefore, when dogs are in the landscape, they suppress the activity of feral cats. So there's the idea that dingoes or wild dogs are our conservation saviour. However, all the work I've done in WA doesn't really support this theory whatsoever. For example, uh, in the Murchison we've seen uh, when we've removed dogs from the landscape or attempted to, we, we didn't see an influx in cat numbers. In fact, cat numbers were just as high as dog numbers, if not high, um, particularly in the Murchison, there was higher than the national average number of feral cats or popular density. So really high numbers. But at the landscape scale dogs and cats um, might not hang out together but they coexist but when you're looking at a fine scale activity um, dogs and cats might come to the water point at different times they might walk down the road at different times of the day so they're both still there they're just picking different times of their 24-hour clock to be able to use that the same part of the landscape um, and in other places where we've actually been really successful in reducing wild dog numbers cat numbers have stayed exactly the same um, and we, we know that wild dogs and feral cats both eat native species. They're probably just not eating the same native species all the time. They've got a different um, spread in prey resources. So, in fact, wild dogs and feral cats are probably just as much of a problem to biodiversity as each other, maybe more so feral cats. But um, cats are definitely not suppressed by wild dogs in WA.
1: Yeah, no, that's great to know that the two issues are completely not related in how we manage our dog control, so it makes it a lot easier. Uh, next myth, are wild dogs and dingoes different species?
2: No, they're not. They're both canis familiaris, as um, said by taxonomists and experts in Australia. Uh, so um, they're, they're all one species. They all have the same role in the ecosystem. It's just that dingoes are a little bit of a different breed within the species uh, and there's different levels of purity. So NWA we very, very fortunate if you're interested in dingo conservation we have a high purity um, here so over 60% of the individuals are 90% to 100% pure dingo and the rest of that is about 80% to 90% pure dingo so fairly high purity we call that an almost dingo 80 to 90%. Um, and anything lower than that is considered a hybrid. And in the recent years, we've, so in the last couple of years, the LPMTs or licensed pest management technicians provide me samples from wild dogs and we look at their dingo purity and we found very few that are actually um, hybrids, probably less than what I can count on my hands. So um, there just isn't many about. Wild dogs is a collective term in Western Australia. We're not hiding behind it. We know that dingoes are incorporated in that term as well as free-roaming dogs, Australian dogs, pet dogs, feral dogs, all the names under the sun for a free living dog in Australia, it comes underneath wild dogs. So they're a collective term. We do do dingo control in Western Australia for sure, but they're not at risk of becoming an endangered species by any means. Um, They don't fit the... uh, definitions of an endangered species because their range is increasing, their numbers are always up and down, there's definitely not a lack of them, and there's um, reproducing adults so there's always going to be a supply of them if you've got multiple adults that can produce offspring. And then the other last fact under the difference or the lack of differences between dingoes and wild dogs is that um, science in WA has shown areas where lethal control has been conducted for 40 plus years they're still high purity dingoes so that theory that if you're uh, controlling dingoes then you're more likely to break pack structure and um, create incidences or opportunities for hybridization is just not true if you can legally control them for that many years and they're all still pure dingoes when we don't have an issue there so um, all the control we do across the state for livestock protection and biodiversity protection is not going to change the purity of dingo so that's not an issue in dingo conservation if that's your thing
1: yeah no that's fantastic it's great to know that the control that we're already doing isn't impacting them in that way mm-hmm. um, and it really preserves our right to continue doing 100%. it to make our systems continue farming and being able to produce sheep and livestock mm-hmm. so that's fantastic uh, the real question I want to know though: Are WA dogs different? No, they're not.
2: Um, they're all the same species, all Canis familiaris across across the continent. WA is a little different in that it has four populations of dingoes, whereas on the east coast they have multiple smaller populations. Because the state over east states over east run on a smaller scale, whereas in WA we're massive, four massive populations: inland, northwest, southwest, and. Midwest, um, and they cover a huge area, um, you know, so the Northwest population covers 1300 kilometers across straight across the middle. So big areas in which to control populations and within them we can actually define kin groups and they're massive. Um, spatial scale as well so up to 800 kilometers sometimes so wild dogs in WA do cover a lot of ground yeah, yeah a lot of ground to
1: control them within yeah yeah definitely well I'm gonna throw another one in too Tracy that I didn't mention before that I have <laughs> remembered uh was what does a dingo look like because I know everyone has an idea that the dingoes are the you know the bright yellowy orange colored dogs that we see out there but that might not actually be the case no coat colors um
2: is not uh not differing between dingoes and non-dingos or wild dogs. So they can be brindle, they can be white, they can be black and tan. One of the interesting things I did recently was when the LPMTs send me in uh, a DNA sample, they also write down the coat color or description of the wild dog. And so recently I went and caught up with a whole bunch of them and um, did maps of where their dogs were caught and the purity of the dingo within them and then listed off all the descriptions and they were only a handful, like one or two, were hybrids. Most of them were pure dingoes or almost dingoes. And they were all colours of the rainbow listed there. So it really shows that a dingo can be any colour and a wild dog can be any colour. You can't just go, oh, it's a wild dog because it's a brindle and it's a dingo because it's a golden coloured thing. They could be each other.
1: Isn't that fascinating, I know so many people out there, when they see dogs out there, probably think that they're looking at one of their neighbours' dogs or something else and that's not always the case. Well the interesting story I have of one of the
2: dogs we have collared down south, um, it is a black and white dog. And, you know, it was running down the road wearing a collar. Someone thought it was a pet dog because it was wearing a collar and it looked like a black and white dog. No, it was a dingo wearing a collar that we were looking at how it impacts cattle production
1: down there. So, yep, definitely happens. That myth is definitely busted. So moving more towards the wild dog control methods, a question that we really want to know, are ground baiting rates high enough? So we've done a lot of work
2: looking at the best ways to bait meat matrices um, and that's all been done at 10 baits a k which is the APVMA approved rate here across well in WA and across Australia um, but recently we got an APVMA permit to try 40 baits a k which is four times the baiting rate and we did that within the hub cell in the Murchison uh, and that showed a significant knockdown in wild dogs up to 50 percent maybe more We got that idea because New South Wales DPI did a similar thing. So they baited at 40 baits a K and they've also done trials at 20 and 10 baits a K. And they had collared wild dogs and then looked at how those dogs survived pre and post baiting. And there was over 90% knockdown of wild dogs where they baited at 40 baits a K. And we found that really similar thing here. We didn't have collared dogs. We were using camera traps to count wild dogs and estimate density but yeah up to 50% knockdown and then I'm sitting here at the moment doing my data entry from September last year to September this year when we baited at 40 baits again a second time and I'm struggling to find wild dogs in the hub so that's a really good outcome for the sheep producers in those stations in WA.
1: Yeah definitely and having higher rates of baits on the ground is that a problem here in Western Australia? Or does that really not affect the Really good question.
2: Natives? So um, in WA we're really fortunate that um, 1080 is a naturally occurring compound. So all our native species have a really high tolerance to 1080 and the only thing susceptible to 1080 and will cause death is wild dogs, feral cats and foxes. So. No, the only things that are at risk of taking that and and passing away from 1080 are our target species. So we're really fortunate in that way that more baits don't mean native species are at any risk whatsoever. Um, But it does mean your working dog is at a bit of a risk. Um, So that's when CPEs or kind of pest injectors are a really good tool to use if you're worried about using baits in and around working dogs um, and your livestock because they're a static bait that only a fox or a wild dog has the ability to pull on but you can put things around them, cover them up, take away the poison capsule when you're working with your dog in the stock paddock. So therefore it's not at risk of, of um, taking the poison. And we did a landscape scale trial with kind of pest ejectors and found that they had a 20% to 75% at times knocked down dependent on the year and the season and the density of dogs at that time of year. Um, and we used meat based lures and felt based lures with a stinky stink on them. Definitely food-based lures had a little bit of interference from non-targets, but the pellet based lures non-targets were not interested in it at all and really were target-specific to wild dogs and they worked really effectively. So if you're not keen on baits because you've got working dogs, go for your CPEs. They worked really well and had a landscape scale
1: level of control for wild dogs. Yeah, that's fantastic to know for some of our southern region growers where they have that risk of domestic dogs and working dogs being around a little bit more. And will help with the fox problem if you've got foxes as well. That would be fantastic. Um, My other question on um, control methods... Does cell fencing work? We hear a lot about barrier fencing, but I want to know about cell fencing.
2: So we know there's four being built within Western Australia at the moment, Carnarvon, Kalgoorlie and the two in the Murchison. The massive big um, one in the Murchison is complete, the Murchison Vermin Regional Cell. Um, The Murchison Hub, which encompasses most of four stations, is almost complete. And I've been doing a lot of work in there to look at the changing wild dog density as they built the fence and how well the sheep and goats are doing within it. Um, I can definitely say the sheep did much better as the cell got more complete. There's a part of it that is now complete, it's not fully complete. And we looked at um, the sheep activity or movements before and after that little bit got complete um, by GPS tracking and we found that the sheep uh, moved further each day once the cell was complete within a smaller core in um, activity area. Um, And a couple of other anecdotal changes with the sheep behaviour was that they flock sizes were smaller, so they didn't feel like they had to group up so much. And they definitely were grazing further afield, picking the best spots and their behavior definitely was less stressful. And that was because the guys have actually worked really hard in there to remove all the wild dogs. And we're finding very few at all exist in the complete part of that cell, not all of it's complete. Other things we noticed was kangaroo numbers didn't explode, which is uh, handy because they're competitors for grazing. Uh, But emus and uh, sheep that were in the incomplete part of the cell uh, definitely dropped in numbers as months went on. Um, And the other interesting fact, jumping back to mesopredator release, uh, is that cat numbers didn't explode where there were absolutely no dogs. So again, there's another example of why mesopredator release theory just doesn't exist in Western Australia.
1: Yeah, great. That's fantastic to see that we're still proving that, even though you already have. It's great to get that reassurance. Um, you were also using a few non-lethal deterrents along with the Murchison cell,
2: can you tell me a little bit about those? Yes, we tried a couple of those uh, deterrents at a big scale. I mean there's been a few studies looking at them at a small scale, um, but we did some field trials. So we tried lights, they act like a lure, so don't try using lights for wild dogs. But we had some squawker boxes and some howler boxes to see whether an auditory deterrents deter dogs. Gorker boxes are really effective. Um, they're also called bingo beepers in Queensland. Uh, but So they definitely scare wild dogs away. They don't like the noise. Your pet dog wouldn't even like the noise. The trick with them is that they'll work on a, a size of an area, the size of your kitchen. But when you're looking at a station um, paddock, you know, that's the size of a suburb in Perth. Um, they don't work, you know. They'll scare the dogs off from that small area, but they'll just hop around. And we did lose sheep in the paddock where the squawkers were. Hence, why the squawkers are now mostly deployed along our state barrier fence in hard to maintain areas and grids, because dogs jump over grids. Um, and they have been really effective at reducing dog activity up to 60%, sometimes more, sometimes a bit less. But um, yeah, the, you do get the odd wild dog that the score because not that scary but majority of them definitely run the other way and you don't see them again so which is good because we haven't had learning of this big scary noise so yeah um, definitely an effective tool on a small scale
1: yeah great looking at some of your work uh, in your presentation from this as well I've got to ask you uh, is it true that you made face ID for dogs so it's not quite face ID, and it wasn't me. It was a company called Avorta on the
2: East Coast. They used, um, it's more like body recognition or species recognition. So we've got lots of 4G cameras set up in the Northern Ag Zone as a surveillance web to detect or do early detection of dogs if they pop through the fence where they shouldn't be or they're in an existing population, because historically dogs were throughout the Northern Ag Zone. And so these these cameras take an image, it goes up to the water platform and they can send you an alert to let you know if a dog's in the space. And that's been really useful. The lucky thing we've noticed recently in the last about four years is that their wild dog numbers um, in the Northern Ag Zone are really, really low, um, which is great because it was a bit of a risk a few years ago when they were popping up in Jinjin and Dalwolinw and places where wild dogs really shouldn't be in a sheep paddock and would be a real, um, sad story if we had high numbers of dogs decimating sheep production in the sheep paddock so these are an early detection tool Um, and yeah there's only the odd dog in latham and perenjury where there've been historically a lot of dogs in the past but essentially the upgrades to the fence and the lpmts and our early detection has meant that dogs are just disappearing from the northern ag zone which is a good thing
1: yeah. yeah, what um, a fascinating way to see AI being used. Yeah, we definitely don't want to
2: drop off our uh, activity there because the, now the um, issue is um, the outside of the fence. There's high pressure of dogs there, so we need to keep our LPMTs working the fence and the landowners being encouraged to do dog control along there, so that's really important so they don't get the re-incursion.
1: Yeah, no, fantastic. And my last myth for the day, can dogs keep wild dogs away? Ah, uh, so livestock guardian dogs or maramas um we've
2: done a little bit of work about this um they definitely keep foxes away out of a small paddock we've definitely had that and they'll so my big thing about maramas is um is that people call them a non-lethal tool maramas are not a non-lethal tool they're a lethal tool they will interact with the predator you're trying to protect your stock from and kill it so maramas kill foxes in the chicken paddock Um we've definitely found the same thing with uh, maramas in the sheep paddock protecting from dingoes or wild dogs um, they'll also uh, collect their own food, as in kangaroos, they'll actually eat their own food that way. So, we've been looking at how maramas protect sheep in the Murchison um, by where the maramas are wearing video tracking collars, um, and some of the sheep are wearing tracking collars as well. And we've definitely recorded that maramas stick with their sheep and look after them and do a pretty good job. But they're not perfect because Sheep like to go off on their own to give birth, which means they're open to predation and we have lost some collared sheep to wild dog predation in the Marama paddock with the sheep. So that's a bit sad. And when wild dog numbers really peak and get really high, so like May this year there was a wild dog on camera every day, Um, that's pretty hard for members to keep up the activity. Um, and um, pressure on wild dogs to keep them away from their sheep. So there was a few losses then, but when they're working really well and they're getting around their whole sheep flock, you know, uh, the producers were seeing a 66% increase in lambing. So that's fantastic. But yeah, you have to put a lot of effort into looking after your maramas and making sure they're bonded with your sheep. It's not just send them off, have a a great time guys. Um, But when you put the effort in and you really look after your maramas and your sheep, they do a really good job, but um, they're not perfect either.
1: Yes, I think one of those constraints was the number of maramas they had to have um, in order to protect their sheep. Is, mm. It's quite substantial for... Yeah, at least eight
2: for 600 sheep and I think a few more maramas were going in because dog numbers just were pretty astronomical in that spot in the Murchison, there seems to be a hot spot for dogs, so yeah. Yeah,
1: so a few challenges there but at least it's something to work from. It's nice to try something yeah. different, yeah. And it's been interesting to hear all of your information coming together. Uh, And building the understanding of the wild dog problem, clarifying what's true and what's false, so we can plan for the future. But can you talk to our listeners a little bit more about the practical application? Uh, If you're a grower out there, what's the best method of getting assistance? Uh, And can you talk to me about a couple of the steps that are recommended for wild dog control today?
2: So the number one recommendation for wild dog control is that there's no silver bullet. Uh, we call it the toolbox so you need to do trapping, baiting, CPEs. If you're into non lethal deterrence give it a go. If you're into having guardian animals give it a go. Fencing, self-fencing or barrier fencing, you need a little bit of everything because um, predators are quite intelligent species that learn. Um, most uh, Areas where there's wild dog issues have an RBG or a recognised biosecurity group in that area. And so make sure you're in contact with your group and you're allowing the licensed pest techni- pest technician on your property to do dog control. Um, if you aren't in an area where there's a recognised biosecurity group and you are having wild dog issues, you need to contact us immediately because you're obviously a new area of incursion, which we're always looking out for with our surveillance web. We're hoping to keep that early detection so we can stop wild dog problems and pressure before they become too bad Um, but yeah make sure you're in contact with your rvg and you let your lpmt on your property and you play with every tool in the toolbox to stop wild dogs becoming an issue for your sheep
1: flock yeah beautiful well thanks so much for talking to me today tracy it's been fantastic Um, and it's great that we've shed some light on some of those myths that are out there Um, and yeah i'll thank you for speaking to us today i'm sure we'll see you around plenty
2: thanks for letting me have a chat
1: that was Tracy Creflins from the WA Department of Primary Industries a very informative discussion on wild dogs you can find more information at the AWI website wool.com or you can follow AWI on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and from me Tori Kirk thanks for having a yarn with us